Welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I am TJ Van Toll, and with me today on the panel is Paige Nietzschehouse. Hey, everybody. And our special guest today is Joe Carlson. Joe, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and why you're famous and such? <laughs> I felt special. I'm the special. I'm the specialist. Exactly. Yes. We don't tell all our guests. Uh, that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure. We're the best guest of all time here today. <laughs> and, um, I'm biased, but I do think I'm the best guest of all time. No, I'm sure you've had amazing guests on here. I'm Joe Carlson. I'm a developer advocate and software engineer. I work for a little company called MongoDB. We make a little database you may have heard of. And what do I do? I speak at tech conferences. I write. I Twitch stream. I make TikTok videos for engineers. <sighs> uh, yeah, and I program. I also program too. <laughs> That's the most important part about me getting on the show. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick. And it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. Repping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at reactroundup.com slash Raygun. Very cool. I, I definitely want to get into the TikTok aspect of this, uh, but I know we do want to talk about serverless a little bit today. And it's like a sort of gentle introduction. So maybe you could start by just setting the stage for us for people that maybe have heard a little bit about serverless and aren't totally sure exactly what it's about or where to start or anything. You want to just sort of set the stage on what serverless is for like your average rank and file React developer out there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think Serverless is like one of those things I think that most devs have like heard the words of, and I don't see like a, a not a lot of them or maybe have not have used it yet. You know what I mean? So like we'll definitely come from that perspective, like a brand newbie. We're not expecting anyone to be an expert in serverless or even DevOps or like infrastructure maintenance. That's the whole point of serverless though, right? Like serverless allows us to build applications without having to worry about any server infrastructure, which yep. it's like, that's easy. I also want to just get this out of the way too. I feel like, like serverless is a really misleading name. Like there's still servers. It's just somebody else's <laughs> servers. So like, yeah, it's a bad name, but like also it's it's sexy and trendy. So like it's it works. It works. Everyone gets it. So when your server goes down, it's not you who's scrambling to figure out why it fell over. It's Amazon or exactly. Google or you know yeah. who, Azure who's figuring out what's going wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Kelsey Hightower tweeted this about a year ago, but he says like, I remember the days when I built my own gaming PCs and eventually I just broke down and just bought an Xbox or a PlayStation just because I want to play games and I want to worry about the hardware. You know what I mean? And like, 
for us and me personally, like I'm a software guy. I like algorithms and building things and making cool art with it, but I don't really care about managing the infrastructure. Like that's a pain. And especially if I deploy something, I don't want to have to worry about it like three years in the future. I just like don't care enough. Um, I think that's a pretty common thing with devs. And even for like businessy things too, like that ends up, be, there's a lot of other benefits, which we'll get into here today about why you may want to consider building your next app on a serverless infrastructure. Yeah, you nailed it. You don't have to worry. Like it's someone else's problem. Who cares? I think the thing is too, it's gotten a lot harder. Like as I think as the apps we're building are more complex, like it used to be, you could spin up a simple Apache server and yeah. take like the default config that you find on the internet and mostly be good. But Nowadays, if you want to compete, you're talking about you need a CDN that's distributed and you need mm -hmm. these like these response times. You need these servers that can scale to meet demand and rushes and like yeah. all of these things that like your average front end developer, like even if they're capable of doing some of this stuff, if you spent the time to research it, I mean, it's it's basically its own. It's a full time job. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. I mean, especially for any decent sized traffic company or whatever, you know or downtime, I don't know. Or if you're managed, like, God forbid you have your own server farm in your garage or whatever you're managing. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like scaling and managing and transferring data. Like what a pain, what a pain in the butt. I, I don't know. Well, I, I just mean, don't care. It's getting into the DevOps space. It's like, you've got to manage Docker containers. You might yeah. have a Kubernetes cluster. You've got just a million other things yeah. that have nothing to do with your application, except that it has to run on them. Yeah. And you know, I can do some of that stuff. I can figure out how to do some of that stuff, but it takes away from the actual building of websites, which is what I want to be doing, which is 100%. what my job is supposed to be about. So yeah, it's 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 just too much stuff for one one person or one team to be responsible for, it seems like. Yeah, totally. And like, if that's your thing, cool. I know this isn't a DevOps infrastructure podcast. Like most <laughs> of us are probably just front engineers. We're building some sort of web application. And even, you know, and like we may have a backend on it, but whatever. I have to tell you, like, so I'm a full stack JavaScript developer. I've been teaching full stack Node, JavaScript, and React for a couple of years now. But like, I haven't built, like I built Node servers, but most of my apps I have running, they're all serverless. I haven't built like a production grade node server for years it's just because like serverless is just so much easier for me to do and so there's other things too like as developers maintaining infrastructure which serverless takes you don't have to worry about anymore but you don't have to like provision stuff if you need to scale up let's say you're making like a application for like a game show and it's being for nbc and you get to go on and vote online for your next idol or whatever like you're going to see massive traffic for like an hour when that show's on and like if you were managing that own you'd have to like build all the infrastructure to like be scaled up for it. But serverless just does that. It just, for, you get that for free. Nothing. You don't have to do anything. Um, you don't have to patch anything. No security updates. Google, Amazon, Azure is taking care of all that. You don't have to do capacity planning and you don't have to scale. So that's actually a great lead in. One question that I had, because I'm really not, I haven't done a lot with serverless personally, is how do you do stuff like authentication with serverless? Because there's nowhere to store, you know, secret keys for APIs or environment variables or stuff like that. So how do you handle that in a serverless environment? Yeah, so like, okay, so I'm gonna talk about it. So like MongoDB, we have a serverless option, which is the one I have the most experience with. It's pretty comparable to what you're gonna be seeing with like AWS Lambda or I can't remember Azure calls them um, or GCP. But yeah, you could still do it. Like you can do like authenticated gateways and like with our thing too, like, okay, so with MongoDB, the specific thing we you can, what I typically do is I just have a serverless front end that accesses some data 
we have a MongoDB database. You could like write rules about who can access that data or like what kind of parts of the application they can get access to or like what are the functions they're allowed to do. But like, because you're sending a request to a server, a serverless like endpoint to like do something, but you could, you're also sending like cookie and authentication data in there too. So you can still pass auth data through your serverless chain of functions if you want. So Joe Schmo can only see Joe Schmo's data. And we know that's him because he's authenticated. It's complicated though. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> like the hard part is like, ev- like it's very, um, what's the word? Uh, functional. Like each serverless function does one thing. It doesn't maintain state. So you have to like pass state through to it mm-hmm. in the form of like a payload request. Okay. So, you know, I, I can definitely understand that. And I've had experience with that in terms of like passing JSON web tokens from the front end to a, a back end node server and having it do authentication. But how would you do that with local development? How do you have those Lambda functions or whatever it is that you're running in the cloud? How do you connect that to a local environment that you're working on? Yeah, most of them have a CLI, which is super nice. It's like I first got started with serverless, just working with the GUI, like Lambda, you can just write a JavaScript function in the browser. But the problem with that is you can't do source control. And I like to back on my code on Git, which I think most of us yeah. do. But the nice part is every serverless provider I ever used has a CLI. So I just write on my code in Visual Studio Code, have version control on it, and then I can just upload the serverless functions up to the cloud. But yeah, so you like you can't really do local development with it. You still have to like your development is like local and you're passing it up and then testing it in the cloud. Interesting. Okay. So it's worked so fine. let's say I had a React app that I was running locally on the front end, could I pretty easily just switch some environment variables and change it to point towards the cloud and whatever serverless functions I needed? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah. Like I've refactored applications because what I like to do is just like as a developer, I make like a static front end with like Next.js and React or something or just like vanilla JavaScript and HTML. Mm -hmm. Upload that to GitHub pages or some static, which is free. Right. And then I just have a serverless backend, which is you're just paying for the requests you make. You don't have to like it's not running 24 seven. So it's way cheaper to run. Yeah. But like if I want to do that, I just it's pretty easy. Just like yank out your server, point to your serverless front end and bada bing, bada boom, you're done. I wish podcasts I could show people a diagram. It's like I'm like trying to paint a picture. There's like a serverless gateway and then you have like your data you want and it kind of passes through it. But I hope our, I hope our listeners can imagine this in there. <laughs> <laughs> their minds yeah it's weird though it, I, d- development took a little because i think most of us especially front-end developers are like used to just like this local dev environment we're running on local hosts we're just running on the thing i'm building actually like minutes before i jumped on this podcast I, i'm building a digital graffiti board it's basically like a web app it just has, it's like a grid a 32 by 32 grid and you can just draw on it and i'm syncing all the data to a mongodb database and it just has a serverless function that just goes and makes updates and read requests back and forth and then it syncs with all the people that are using it but yeah there's no back end it's just a database in the cloud with a serverless function to go get the data i need from it awesome so i'm curious one concern i've had at least in terms of dealing with larger apps is these serverless things because there's a lots of pieces to this there's authentication there's data yeah. i think we're going to get into some of the other things State management do, yeah. like lambdas like there's a lot do you have any concerns with like using multiples of these services and trying to keep them all like in sync? Because you might not be using the same provider for all of these. And so this sort of gets at to like having your CLI for your local environment. 
And yeah. at least when I've tried to, to sort of tinker with these before, it can get like quickly out of hand because <laughs> if you're in like a real world scenario, right? We're talking yeah. like big company that's got complicated stuff going on. They're probably like cloud. Yeah. 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 So is there some concern? Because like back in the day, right, all that stuff would be in-house. And yeah. I mean, that came with its own problems. Obviously. Maybe it's in a monolith or something or a smaller microservice. But yeah, right. I mean, like it's it's in a thing that you can see and touch control and you have the logs for it. Yeah, that's a fair concern. And I think it depends how complicated you're getting. Like, so I built a function uh, recently. It was like a journaling app, but I hooked up to AWS's simple email service or SES. So like basically if someone shared a thing with you, you'd get an email notification that you got this blog post shared with you. Yeah, that can, I mean, it, it can get complicated, especially with like you have log files, they may be in different services. You have to like check them out. You may have to consolidate them. It's just more distributed. And it's up to you how much you want to kind of split it up. I know a lot of people have really strong feelings about just like staying in Azure, staying in AWS, which is pros and cons to doing that. But yeah. Yeah, it, it can be complicated. <laughs> like, <laughs> I recommend drawing, like having detailed diagrams, actually, because like where things are, because it can get confusing. Yeah, because presumably you'd have to have, because I, I mean, just for some background for people listening to this, I've tinkered with serverless, but I've never used it like at a huge scale, right? So I'm thinking of people that are in large organizations, they have very real worldy React apps. Because I picture it too, like, you probably have to get to the point where you'd have deploy scripts, right? Because you'd make changes like to your local testing environment and then you have to push those out to the different providers you're using as well. So I could see it getting a little bit wonky if you are using multiple services and trying to keep everything aligned and make sure everybody's dev environment keeps working and pushing that all up to production at the same time as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And like, I think you can script a lot of that like just making like and we set up if I was going to pull down a monolith that was connecting to an S3 service and a MongoDB database and a GCP machine learning like like you'd have to make sure you got all those keys and configs working locally too like it's still a lot of pieces you have to pull in yeah this actually might be a good chance to talk about like what projects are good candidates and which aren't for serverless I don't think like anything in tech like there's no silver bullet so like serverless isn't a thing that's going to come in and solve all of our <laughs> our infrastructure problems because it's Dang not it. oh, i know right i know i was hoping <laughs> for that <laughs> i'm sure you'll meet some salespeople from some serverless companies i'll tell you that but, but it's i mean it's not true we know right <laughs> even react right it's like not that's not even the silver bullet for all of our front-end woes you know it's great but it's not it's not the silver bullet but anyway serverless why like what kind of projects make great candidates for serverless projects like i said so like i i use it for pretty much any static site that just needs like database access or like some data backend, great candidate, like easy, not too hard. Yeah, that's super simple. The other one I think is really useful is variable traffic levels. So if you have a web application that's going to be wildly <laughs> ballooning, we gave the example of like a game show app, right? Like it's only going to be used one day a week for an hour and you're going to have millions and millions of people using that for the one hour. Like that may, that's a good candidate for a serverless application because you don't have to pay or manage for all that scalability with your, your, your server infrastructure. I also would recommend it too for companies who like have a monolith or even like a Kubernetes, whatever, cluster in the cloud. They just need like additional compute power and they just don't want to scale up. And it's a good candidate. Just like throw some additional traffic or overflow traffic over to a serverless compute to kind of like handle any of the extra overflow stuff. And lastly, I will say serverless does come with some, it can be a little trickier to, you still have to like manage keys and DevOps is, still exists, right? Like we still have to deploy our code. We still have to manage it. We still have to get our environment set up. 
but it does make most web applications cheaper, which is, as me as a Joe Schmo developer, and if I'm doing a side project, I don't want to pay any money for that side project. <laughs> but you're only paying like a fraction of a penny per request or whatever, right? And most companies have a free tier, but it's, I've never, I've never paid money for serverless ever in my life. But that's also because I've never made anything that's become popular. <laughs> it's just, yeah, blown up on Hacker News. Yeah, I haven't got the red hug of death before, which, <laughs> hey, I haven't paid anything, but also like, that's fine. I, I probably I would like to get a red hug of death at least once in my life, but um, I haven't, haven't, haven't received that blessing yet from the gods. Um, but anyway, if I did, I've been a serverless application. I think the, the Reddit hug of death is when a site gets on the front page and it gets it crashes because it can't scale up to the mass amount of traffic. But if you had a serverless app, that would not be a problem. And it'd probably be cheaper than having an app that scaled up that much. So yeah, there's a lot. I mean, there's so there's, I think there's good applications for it. It's not for everything. It's not for everyone. Yeah, and I think it, I mean, we could even make this conversation more granular because I mean, serverless is such a broad term, like, because really we could have an entire conversation about when is user, like moving your user management to serverless, a good idea? When is moving your data a good yeah. idea? When is moving some of your lambdas? Because it's almost, there's almost separate considerations for each of these things. Because I am curious about data as well. And I don't know specifically, like MongoDB, do you just handle the database bit or do you actually like host users' data in the cloud as well? Yeah, totally. I mean, like, yeah, so it's like we have a serverless compute front end. It's called Realm. It's brand new. Actually, we do some cool stuff with it. I, oh, I got to tell you about this too, actually. It's just cool. I'm like legit excited about it. But yeah, like the question, what was the question? We're like, do you like host data in the front end, like on the serverless layer? Yeah, like you actually host the user's data in the yes. cloud. Okay. Yeah, 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 totally. Like, of course, we have like um, the, our MongoDB databases and like it's great at interfacing for those, but only interface with those too. Like, yeah, you can upload. We have a CLI so you can upload functions cool. yeah. and whatever, right? Yeah, because I think it gets into... I know for like the bigger organizations I've worked for, there's always a big hesitation to not have your data in-house. And sometimes it gets into like right. compliance and uh, different regulations. And it, depending on what industry you're in, like now you have like totally. GDPR that you have to be concerned yep. about. So I'm curious, like if you see like that sort of thing is a good option, even for like bigger companies that have to deal with some of these regulations and such. Actually, yeah, 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 totally. So actually, one of the big advantages of using MongoDB is we don't have vendor lock-in. I think what you see a lot with the, the big three, GCP, Azure, and AWS, they're amazing services, but they don't want you to leave. It's like really hard to move your data around. But with us, like we just unveiled multi-cloud too. So you can like move your data between data centers or I just want it in the US or I want to break, I want to shard my data by geolocation. So only my European users are there and kind of splitting up and managing the data by geolocation. Like you can do a lot of that super easily, right? I click change to from AWS to Azure, you hit a button and it just migrates your data for you. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah, even with the serverless functions, so you can still manage where and how those do get deployed. It's super easy. Like it just, there's a default thing. But if you need to start fussing about that for compliance reasons, you 100% have control over that. I haven't had to do that personally, but like, I know that's important. I know that's a super important thing that a lot of people have to do. Yeah, and whether it's actually important or not, I, I know a lot of companies will sort of enforce that whether it makes sense or not, right? Totally. I mean, better safe than sorry. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah totally. I mean, especially with data. I, yeah, you don't want to mess around with that. So talking about the data, I know that, you know, typically if you're writing a backend service, you might use an ORM like Mongoose or SQLize if you're 
querying MySQL databases, how would you go about querying data in a ser- from a serverless function? Can you write pretty much the same thing to, and then just aim it towards whoever is hosting your data, like MongoDB's cloud databases? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I'll talk, I'll, I can talk about it most, like, from most personal experience in the MongoDB serverless. And I think most of them are pretty similar too. But like MongoDB, we have a web SDK. So you just like load it in, you can import it. It's an NPM package or you just CDN it or whatever you want. But yeah, you can just write MongoDB functions on the front end. And you just like hook it up, say like, here's my serverless endpoint. I'm going to send these requests here and the serverless endpoint just knows how to handle them. We also have a thing now too, where you can just like, send fire off HTTP requests, this thing with custom payloads. You can have your thing like go to flow through to Twilio or to AWS or to some other services and do whatever you want or like do a GitHub hook once you push it up. Right? You can do like so many different stuff of it. Yeah, I feel like that's pretty common. If it's the rise of like Next.js and like the Jamstack, like a static front end managed hitting up using APIs to like manage state on the front end is like, that's that's a I mean that's that's huge right now in the industry. Um, I'm also biased. I just at Next.js Conf yesterday too. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. I think that's pretty. And I know like AWS Lambda functions, you just can just like send an endpoint and fire some payloads of data off to different endpoints, and it'll do your magic and return some payload back or whatever. So if somebody <laughs> wanted to get started with that, how you know what is your advice or how did you start first getting familiar with how? these different, this different kind of stuff worked. Yeah, no, totally. Every company has a free tier for something. So like use whatever you want. I think there's always like use something free. I also like, this is so hard. I I always tell people too, like I would try to get like, if you're work, if you're at a company and you can try to like play around the stuff they're getting paid, do that first. If you can't, it's going to be like server, like switching to a serverless infrastructure is kind of a big thing. You can do things like mess around, like, like the overflow example I gave, right? Like, Hey boss, this thing sees a lot of traffic. I'm gonna write a, a lambda function to kind of help this infrastructure out during high stress times or whatever. Yeah, like trying to do that stuff. Otherwise, I would just like try to do something fun at home. Like I said, I like serverless has been easier for me for my personal side projects just because I don't have to build, I don't have to deploy, build, scale servers anymore. I just build a static front end and point it to some data on the back or serverless back end. It's just it's been just easier for me. And that's because I've been doing it now for a couple of years, but I just don't, yeah, I don't know. TLDR, like listen to me yap on about this is like a good way to like learn about it. But I think doing it's the best way. We were talking about that before the show started here today. That's the too, best like way to the, rock it. I like the idea of just like little tinkering projects to experiment to, because usually when you get in big companies, like you have to get like somebody's approval so that right. you can create like some CTO's silly sign up on services. It, yeah. And then yeah. especially if you're using multiple things, then like, you know, you get into like crazy town pretty quickly if you want to actually deploy some of your real infrastructure. Whereas if you're just building like some toy little app that you want to use to track your groceries or to like chat mm-hmm. with your friends or something like that, you could spin that up in a few minutes and try it out. And like you said, all these things are essentially free, like free yeah. at free for any side project you're going to do. So it's it's not going to cost you anything to sort of explore and tinker around. Oh, totally. And even just it, keep it for years for free. I don't know. Like I, 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 I'm obsessed with it. If you're using a product, I, I haven't seen a product that doesn't have a free tier in a long time. I think companies have figured out like devs just won't use it if they have to put a credit card number in it just to play around with it, which is great for us. I know <laughs> I won't. That's a, pay, a credit card pay screen is like, 
Oh, totally. Yeah. That's I'm out end. of here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even if it's like a free tier, like whatever, like actually I love this. MongoDB does this. Like you can set up a free tier with no credit card information or anything, which is super awesome. I mean, the downside is like, if you go over the free tier, like stops, but like, <laughs> I think that's awesome though. If, like if you're just want to play around with it, go, you know, go for it. I love that. Of course, we'll warn you. Of course, it's give you lots of warning if it's going to get shut down, but yeah, I, that's a, it's just a death, death heal. I think. Actually, that gets me into another question about serverless because I find the pricing page of every serverless thing ever to be the most confusing thing. Like, it's fine. Like, okay, right? Like, right, I'm building my little side project. I don't care because I'm not going to hit any sort of limits. Or yeah. if I do, like, it's going to be trivial, right? But if I'm if I'm at big company, right, that example again, right. and I know, like, I have this many users, like, these pages are intimidating because, like, you can tweak some numbers and it's like, oh, well, this is going to cost me either $1,000 a month or $1 million a month, right? Like, yeah, do you have, know. like, are there ways of like easing your way into this? Because like, it, it feels like there'd be some concern of like, let me try switching this over. And I'd be afraid of, or my boss might be afraid that we're going to get a huge bill for, for month one. Is there like ways you could sort of dip your toes oh. in the water for this <laughs> sort of thing? Or? I love that you said that. And that is so true. I feel like, and there, you hear horror stories on like Hacker News and Reddit of, someone getting their AWS keys hacked and then, or they miscompute something, a test environment, and they end up with a $10,000 bill, AWS bill for next month or whatever. No, that's totally legit. And I think as us as human beings, we're just really bad at imagining like super small or humongous numbers. I think a lot of times you see these things are like, these, it costs like one thousandth of a penny per million requests. And like, I have yeah. no idea what like, what a million requests looks like in my brain. You know, I'm sure you guys can't either, right? Like, I don't know. I don't know what a million people looks like or a million dollars. I don't know what that looks like. Yeah, I don't know. I, there is this thing. Ugh, I'm going to have to Google it here. It's like Google's numbers you should, every developer should know. And the reason, and if you ever do like a Google interview or whatever too, it's it's really helpful for like whiteboard, like napkin mathing approximate things. Because of course, like big companies like Amazon, Facebook, Google, Netflix care about scale. Right. So it's like important to get good at that. I think, and there's two types of estimation in our industry. There's like time estimation for sprints and projects and features. And there's mm-hmm. also like estimation of like time and space complexity of our operations in a computer. And that's what's helpful for doing it. Like number of time, like amount of time it takes to go from L1 cache to the, the main motherboard or doing a disk seek for one gigabyte of data. What is, how much time does that take? If, if anyone gives us, just Google latency numbers, every program, grammar, programmer should know there's like 20 of them it's kind of helpful but i feel like just like time estimation it's a learn skill and i'm gonna be honest i suck at it i'm not great at it i only know these when it's interview season and i gotta <laughs> gotta re-up on it but i'm not functionally aware of them at all times yeah i just uh because i i remember looking at this the other day so i just looked it up i'm on azure's pricing page for i don't know what this is and it's yeah. telling me my first 50K RUs are going to be $0.0068. But I'm told that that's a savings over P-I-P-A-Y. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And like, I, yeah. I mean, I've been doing software for a long time. I feel like I've at least decent at some of the basics. And I, I could yeah. not tell you in a human sentence what any of that means. <laughs> oh, I totally I would, agree. Yeah, I would I don't challenge know what... anybody to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, to, without a calculator, just like, no, <laughs> yeah, you're not going to have intuit knowledge. I think that's something because we don't work in that space very often. I think you could do it. But also, I mean, like, it's hard to know. Like I said, we talked about the Reddit hug of death. I don't know if I'm going to make a hit or make something cool. Like, I don't know. Like, it could just be me and my buds trying this thing out. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's tricky. I think, to be honest, I think a lot of that pricing is like intentionally obs- like obscure. I think it's like it's supposed to be kind of marketing-y and kind of that feels good, but I don't really know. Yeah, like these numbers, they look small, but I don't really know. I don't really right. know. And every application is like, different. Maybe you have a massive payload you're sending back and forth and it. You run the free tier out in 16 requests. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm You'll guessing find out, too. right? I'm guessing too, these services don't want to like over promise because part of me thinks like, well, why haven't some UX people gone in onto these pages? You know, these are not, you know, we're talking Amazon, Microsoft, Google, like the biggest companies out there, they have smart UX people. They know that people go to these pages and get confused. They're not Mm -hmm. stupid about this, but I'm guessing like my guess is that they're they're told like, you know, we don't want to make it seem like, hey, you're going to use this. It's going to be cheap because then if people do get a bill, it's going to look really, really bad for them. So they, they sort of, if they make it a little bit obscure, they can sort of hide behind that if people do end up in a bad situation. I don't know. That's my guess. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I don't, not all those are known for their amazing UX. I think Amazon, amazing developers. They're like, their <laughs> AWS console's kind of still a mess. Um, their CLI still, I just set it up again the other day on my, on my Mac. It was, it took, took a long time for me to go figure it out. I think it's getting better. I think they're getting better at it though. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. I think though, like it's it's a common enough model now that at the same time, you have to consider how much are you paying? Like if you're a company that maintains some of this infrastructure yourself nowadays, yeah. you could probably look at your own bills. And I'm guessing they're probably not small if you have, no. like if you're running your own servers, if you're running all of this yourself, yeah. this is not cheap stuff to to put up. So even no. though the pricing can be kind of confusing, my guess is that unless you're in like some sort of a niche situation, you're probably going to end up saving money not maintaining this stuff yourself. So hundred percent. And the the Azure's, the AWS's, even like the Mongo's, like these, these numbers aren't like made up, right? They're actually are tied to like real things. So in theory, it should be tied to how much processing and such you're actually using and such as well. Absolutely. I think MongoDB, our thing is based on like, our features based on the amount of payload that gets sent back and forth. So you're sending small requests. It'll go further, obviously. Yeah, you're paying for processing time. But in like in a non-serverless world, where you're maintaining your own infrastructure, whether that's in-house or in the cloud, like you're still paying for the service to be kept up all the time. So I have a node service running, you know, 24-7. Um, I have to pay for that, even if it's not being used. Or there's zero, like the event loop is saying, you know, no, no requests are getting it. You still have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And I think we're getting better at like Kubernetes is making like, like Docker, like server infrastructure scaling easier to do, right? You can auto scale up. I worked for a large e-commerce company that's blue and had the blue blue uh, price tag that has a big Black Friday. I won't say which one it is, but we have a big Black Friday, right? So we have to like 
scale up the infrastructure. And we could do that, right? Like we, we could plan, right? So like the week before we'd start scaling everything massively up and we'd start scaling it down after, after the holidays. But yeah, but you're still paying for that even if no one's hitting it. But with surplus, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about that. Oh, so I have a question that's a little bit related to that. I know that if you're using something like Heroku to just maintain a node service or a backend database or something, it will, the way that they save money is by spinning it down if nobody is hitting the endpoint on a regular basis, and then they'll spin it back up if somebody comes to your site. So, and there's a a little bit of a latency because of that. So is, is any of that perceived latency when you're using serverless functions yes. or is it much quicker like it just is ready to go no it's the same thing Paige. you nailed it actually so let's talk about some of the cons of serverless we talked about why it's great but you you nailed the biggest problem with servers like because you don't own those someone else is owning those and they don't know that you're about to hit a thing like a massive amount of traffic and i've had that too like i've gone on a heroku app i've been on for six months and it takes me 45 seconds to finally hit that home page yeah, that's that's still a thing because you. But there are ways to mitigate that, and that's called it's called warming up in serverless worlds. So basically, what you do is you just like before you need it, you start making a bunch of requests to it to like warm up a bunch of them so they're already ready to go, and you don't have the initial latency. But when you say warming up, it. like are we talking like is there like people writing literal scripts to like just periodically have a robot hit your website sort of yeah. deal or to hit the function or yeah, yeah like. Exactly. Yeah, you're just making a bunch of requests. Yeah, fake a bunch of requests for it. Like, so if we go back to the game show example, right? Like, I want to make sure all of my servers are ready to go for game time. Like, yeah, I might just 15 minutes before just fire off a ton of requests or whatever to make sure that they're available. I know it's kind of weird. But and, and that's the downside of not owning it. Because if I own those servers, I can make sure they're running, right? That's they're ready to go. But like, you got to let Google know or AWS know, hey, there's something's coming here. Do they still, have, that's a problem. Do these services have ways of automating some of this? Like, are there ways that you can say, because I've heard of people before just having something that quite literally just pinged their endpoint every yeah. six, you know, number of minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It surprises me that like they wouldn't have some way of saying like, maybe you pay a little bit more, but we'll provide some like always ready oh, uh, totally. sort of thing, like functionality or something like that. Yeah, totally. Or like faster ready or something. I... Let's see here. I'm actually, I, I have no, I've never done that before, but th- you're, you're right. That like seems so obvious. I'm on AWS's warming up a dedicated IP address. Yes. It looks like you can enable that. So you can like, okay. I think you can set like delivery windows. I haven't done that before personally, but TJ, I think you may have just invented something if that wasn't a I, thing. I'm going to get, I'm going to get AWS's product manager on the line. I'm sure this is <laughs> <That's right. laughs> a brand new idea. They're going to, they're going to give me a big, big deal here. So. No, I think that's I think that's so smart though. Like right, yeah, like a dedicated Windows because like most e-commerce sites aren't going to see much traffic from you know at, in the evening or something, right? Whatever your whatever whenever people are active on your site, but you can like it's generally pretty predictable, right? So you can like kind of go around that. I will say too, the, so the warming up is one of the biggest problems about serverless. The other two are state must be external, right? Because they're being spun up and spun down. So state's not being maintained by any of your servers, which right. is like good practice. It's hard to do in reality, like making sure there's no state. Like microservices are always supposed to be stateless. Mm-hmm. I've rarely seen that to be true. It's hard to write a 100% functional microservice. Yes. Um, and lastly, the other thing too is like, just because we're in 
we're abstracting infrastructure away doesn't mean that you still like DevOps, DevOps is still a thing. I'm not a DevOps guy, but like you still got to make sure your code flow is good. You got to make sure keys are managed correctly. All these secrets are being passed around correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and TJ, you brought up too, even if you have a really complicated serverless function in a multi-cloud environment with a bunch of different providers, like that can get complicated. You still have to worry about that as a developer. So it's not perfect, but it does solve some problems. And I think from the front end world, I think we, like I've gotten massive benefit out of it from my projects. Um, it's just at the front end, it just makes my life easier. That just means it's for everyone, you know? Well, along those lines, I'd be curious. So Paige sort of asked this earlier, but one concern, or I talked about how confusing the pricing pages is, but even if you just go to like the 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 list of services on something like AWS or Azure, it's right. so incredibly intimidating to someone. It's intimidating to me, and I've even tinkered oh, with it. Same. Like, yeah, there's acronyms and things throwing thrown at you all over the place. So your logos make no sense. They all look the same but different. <laughs> but I don't know yeah. what they mean. People yeah, throw around terms like EC2, like like it's just like really common things that everybody yeah. of course gets. Um, oh, totally. I, I was just looking through GCPs. I know they're AWS is definitely the worst. I think for services, amazing technical. I just don't understand any of the acronyms. Don't make any sense to me. So, um, but my my question I'm I'm sort of getting to here is like, are yes. there <laughs> this is just a confusing lead-in, but I get so excited. I just wanna... <laughs> where like are there logical starting points? So if someone is listening to this and they they haven't tinkered this with this before, it's like what's like the simplest thing you could do with serverless to sort of dive in and sort of experiment it? Would it be trying to do something with data? Yeah. Would it be like writing some serverless functions, authentication? Are there are there like easy starting points you would recommend? Yeah, yeah I'm trying to think like. I would just like, honestly, like if you have a side project or something, I would just try to not build a node server. I think simpler, the better. It doesn't even have to be a thing that's cool. It can just be a serverless function that talks to React that just sends hello world back and forth or something like that. And I'm curious what you guys think about this too. But I think with us, like most of the time, like with front end developers, we're just, we're passing data from a server to the front end. We're just playing that in the DOM. Cool. So I do think data is the easiest thing to deal with, which is I think Mongo, if you're already using a MongoDB database, it like makes a lot of sense doing it. But yeah, just like displaying stateful data you need to maintain somewhere and pulling it into Spang and Dom. That's super easy. And then I like I like to like what I do when I'm learning something new is I'll like go everything has got like a hello world. I'll get that hello world working and I'll start changing that to like fit the needs of the whatever project I'm building. And then I'll slowly start adding stuff on it. Authentication always comes last for me. I just because it adds a bunch of pain for testing. But yeah, just like slowly building features on it. I don't know. What do you guys think? What's what do you think is a good way to pick up a new project or like a new piece of tech? Usually, I like to look at a cup, at least a couple of written examples of other people who've done like a little tutorial or something to just kind of get an idea of how they're building it. And maybe if there's some videos out there, I'll take a look at that. But then same thing. I really learn the most by actually trying to build something on my own and breaking it and trying to figure out what's gone wrong. So yeah, yeah, it's really just getting your hands dirty at the, at the end of the day and just deciding I'm going to learn this. <laughs> oh, totally agree. Yeah. I'm just thinking out loud here too. Like I think homepages of websites, if I go to like a new service, they'll give you like a one sentence explainer of mm-hmm. what it is, but it feels really marketing to me. I like reading like blog posts, comments and hack news, like see what the r- real developer experience with it or like play around with it. Yeah. Or, yeah, blog posts or going to conference talks and like seeing or listening to podcasts like this and seeing like, is this new tech worth my time? Mm-hmm. You know, 
Yeah. And I, I think I totally agree with you have to sort of do it yourself. And so that makes the advice to give sort of hard because really the problem you should solve yeah. is the problem you have. So if, yeah. if you are building a little side project and you're like, I'd like, I really need to store data or I need a user accounts, right? I'm building this app and I want people to be able to register. Well, then there's your logical opening point. So it sort of depends on the problem you have. But I don't think like, I've never been good at learning to say like, oh, here's technology X and I want to sit down and learn it. Yeah. If I don't have a reason to learn it, like if it's oh, totally agree. Problem I have either for side project or for work, like there's got to be something I'm trying to solve. Otherwise, it's just going to feel very contrived and I, I won't actually get much out of it. I'm not going to finish it. And I feel like getting to the end is like where you like you actually have to bl- plow through those hard bugs instead of just giving up or skipping to the next Udemy tutorial if it's hard or something, you know? I feel the same. I have ADHD and like I just have a hard time paying attention in general and I need to like get focused on something too. That's why like videos don't work for me. I I 0% can learn from a video. And I, like people who can do it, God bless you. Great. I can't do it. I got to build something. And I agree. I like building like stupid art and stupid projects and like fun little goofy things. And I do it just for me, you know, I, I, can I, I feel like in this industry, we have this like thing. It's like, you got to monetize all your side projects, got to be profitable. You got to hustle all the time. And like, I think that's just BS. I wish people would just build stuff just because they like it more. You don't have to, otherwise it's like too much pressure and it's to be perfect. It's just like, I got to make money on this platform. Like who cares? Just no, like I've learned, I mean, I'll throw my side projects out there because I've I've got a very, very monetized collection of things. So I've got a site that deals with uh, standard poodles that I worked on with my significant other. So, you know, huge money in that industry. Yeah, and, totally. <laughs> and I've also been working on a Pokemon checklist app, which I, I'm pretty sure I'm the first person to build a Pokemon checklist app. I right? think no, you are too. <laughs> I don't think anybody else has ever built these things before. No. Um, no. So like these things have this, let's say like it rounds to zero users. Right. But, yeah. but, the, but the thing is like, they're things that I've had fun building and I don't feel like pressure to work on them. So if I don't feel like working on working on no. them, I don't, but if I want to learn something, sometimes like it's real, it's real enough that like, I feel like I, I want to implement things and actually get them right. And no. So I learned like the Pokemon checklist app was the first time I dealt with Netlify. And it's like, oh, like this is kind of a fun, like, you know, for site hosting and things like that. And you start to like solving these problems, even if they're they're not like super, quote unquote, important, they're real enough to you that it'll actually force you to learn something going through the process. So 100% in agreement. Yeah, this is really niche. I don't know how many audience is going to get into this either, but like, so I'm my job as a developer advocate. I speak, I make YouTube videos, I go on podcasts, I like talk about like tech all the time. But for me, like this is Richard Feynman technique to learning something new, but like learning something well enough to teach it is mm-hmm. like, and if you can't teach it, it means, or like if you try to teach it and you realize there's holes in your understanding, it, you quickly start to like fill those up. So for me, like if I want to learn a new piece of tech, what I start doing, I just start submitting CFPs about it. And if it gets accepted, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta learn that thing and teach people about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that. I think people can do that. Even if you're not a dev advocate, like speak at your meetups, talk to your dog about the thing. You know what I mean? Like teach it, make a YouTube video, blog about it. You can still do that at home. Maybe if you're not doing it all the time. Yeah. The I'm a dev advocate too. And the, the dirty secret about dev advocacy is we're really not that smart. It's no, just, 
it's no. really about just pretending to know stuff until yeah. you have to learn it well enough to to pretend a little bit better. Essentially, yeah. it's a job description of a dev advocate. It is. And I like being honest about it too. It's like, hey guys, I I I learned this a week ago. This is what I learned, but that's still even a valuable perspective. Like I'm one week ahead of whoever is listening to me talk about it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I went through I went through the pain, and I'm going to make your path slightly easier. Exactly. Like that's. <laughs> And there can be some value to that. So, yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. I do feel like I feel very privileged to do that. I'm a white man. Podcast listeners can't listen to this. And I think that I don't get challenged on that. And I, I don't, I just want to acknowledge, I think not everyone has that same experience in the industry. I think women and brown people don't, black and brown people don't have that same experience. But I'm hoping that changes and gets better. But it's still a great way to learn if you feel comfortable doing it. Yeah. Um, should we end with like some wild speculations about the future of infrastructure and serverless? I am always yeah. game for wild speculation. It sounds like <laughs> it sounds like you came prepared for this. So <laughs> I have some like, ideas. Yeah. So I, I'm gonna give you the floor here to, to kick <laughs> us off. Okay. This is just like again, this is like wild speculation. I'm, I hope someone's listening to this podcast five years from now and they can <laughs> laugh at how wrong we are today at this. So, but I, I do think. I think serverless as a trend is not going anywhere. I think what I've seen over my career in tech is that the easiest solutions win. The, the easiest, like, de like devs are smart, but you got to make it real. They got to make that barrier to entry really low to get a developer to get into it. I think like DevOps space, like Kubernetes is like, it's getting better. Kubernetes are still a massive sheer cliff of a learning curve to kind of understand how to become functional with that. I'm seeing generally like the tools that are the easiest to use. Like I think Facebook and MySpace, like Facebook won the social media war because it, you didn't have to customize. It was a one fit, one size fits template, right? My grandma could get on it and it's not a big deal, right? Yeah, we're going to continue seeing abstraction. I'm also seeing too, like we're going to see like, especially like some like MongoDB, right? Like we're dealing with mass amounts of data. Like I feel like our infrastructure is going to get better and smarter about predicting using like machine learning models, like, automatic optimizing or scaling up or scaling down based on feedback it's learning you don't have to tell it anymore right yeah and i think the thing about it too is that the i mean we talked earlier about what are good use cases for serverless and what isn't the things that we're going to see more of the things that aren't a good use case for it start to fall into this bucket yeah. i think part of it is that the absolute biggest company quite literally in the entire world are doing this sort of thing right and they yeah. and also they're making a lot of money off of it so it behooves them to continue to invest in this sort of thing. Serverless is not yeah. going to get more expensive. It's only going to get yeah. cheaper. So it's going to become more mm -hmm. viable for bigger and bigger companies. So yeah. I agree. I, I don't think like, I, I think this is going to be a slow conversion because like any tech, 100%. a lot of this stuff yeah. gets really, really tied into your infrastructure. So if you have something that exists, I mean, there's plenty Sticky. of COBOL apps and such that still exist <laughs> out there. So this isn't going to be like a seismic thing that happens overnight. But I think no. like you're going to see more and more people just like even bigger companies that are somewhat reticent right now saying, why would I do any of this myself when there are better and better and cheaper and cheaper options out mm -hmm. there all the time? Totally. And there's examples and use cases where you don't want to abstract it away. But I'm going to be honest, like probably 90% of web apps probably don't need just it. Just need to get some. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> Like it just needs to get some data, send some data back and forth. And I don't want to worry about it or scale it. I just, I want to just put some data in there and get it back or whatever. Like yeah. that's most at web apps. I think most, I think 
devs in general, I think, are, we think problems are, we over-engineer too much. And I try to keep things as simple as possible, reduce amount of code, you know? Well, the thing is, like, most companies, like, I, I, another common line you hear a lot is, you should only care about what makes your business unique, right? So if you're working at a big shopping company that has a tag and Black Friday sales, you probably care about selling electronics, right? And merchandise, because that's the core to your business. You're not yeah. in the industry of like scaling web servers. That's not core to what you do. Mm-hmm. So when those things aren't your sort of core business and very, um, like I said, unless you work for like Amazon or Microsoft, it really isn't core to your business, then you're probably better off making that somebody else's problem and paying them so you can focus on what yeah. makes whatever it is you're doing unique and interesting. Well, that's the thing that's... Agree. It's so cool about our industry is that, you know, things like the Jamstack are coming into play more and more and people are picking it up because it's easy to get started with. And then, like you said, you just slap a couple of backend functions somewhere Mm -hmm. so that you can do that authentication that you need or that, you know, database reading and writing that you need. But like you said, that's just part of your business that drives people to whatever it is that you're actually doing or selling or, or making. And I love that. I love that we're democratizing that and making it easier for people who are less technical to get into it and yes. be, be out there and be found. I love that you said, I totally agree. Yeah, like lowering the barrier entry. I, and I totally agree. We should like, we got to make it, it every, I think we should like try strive to make all of our tools super beginner friendly, you know, like, and if it's not, you think it's probably a product. You could probably have some problems with your product, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it is pretty liberating though, because your average like React front end developer, you can do a lot more than you used to be able to do. Because oh, totally. If you, like back in the day, if you were building an app and then all of a sudden you needed user management, it's like, well, good luck, right? <laughs> it looks like the next few months are taking up for you to like figure out the server infrastructure for you to set this up. And now at least it's like, oh, there's some options, right? There's some services you can plop in to do that. Yeah. And that that's for user management, for data, for serverless functions, for heck credit cards, right? A lot of these things that used to be like problems that would be complete showstoppers, there's now options, which is kind of cool. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, I think that makes it like make a more impressive, cooler app in a, a weekend or whatever, you know? I, I totally agree. Yeah, it's just, and it's it's become more simpler. I was actually looking back at some of my early React projects from like 2015, 2014. Mm-hmm. Like, it was just so complicated, man. It was really spinning up a node server to do a, like render the spawn, like send it all off and like like thousands of lines of code just to display some data. And now it's just like, I got a file, I like I have a serverless end, I pull some data. It's so much, it's just, it's so much easier. It's so much easier. The React team has done a great job of just like shaving the edges off. Yeah. I think it's a long way to go. But Create oh, totally. is just a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. And next for deploying. I don't know. It's made my life so much easier, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm so thankful for. We've we've covered a lot on serverless. Is there anything we've missed here? Is there anything that we should wrap up on? Any points to, to tie a bow on serverless today? Well, I don't know. I usually when I like whenever I talk about serverless, I usually go through a live demo and kind of walk through a project. The hard part too with the podcast is like it's it, when you're not digging the code, it can feel kind of abstract. Yeah. And it's hard not to, when you're not seeing the code, we're kind of talking these high things, like or these high level concepts without any concrete things. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to send TJ a link to a sample code project you can get started on. 
I think it's a good way to jump in. I think it's just, it's nice to have a hello world. It includes authentication, some other fancy fun stuff you can try out too, but it basically walks through all the features of serverless. But no, I think that's good. Yeah, I love this. It's been great. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to get that link if you send it over. We'll get it in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, you know, scroll down, look in your podcast description and you can find it there. So why don't we move into the picks? Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. So Paige, you want to kick us off? Sure, I will kick us off. My pick this week is something that my husband and I had just finished binging because we needed something else during quarantine to watch. And it is the the Doctor Who series that is available. Yeah. You know, started on the BBC. It's available through HBO Max. So that's what we were watching it with. And it's the the it's not really a reboot, but I guess it's the second coming of it where it came back in like 2005, 2006 and started. Who's the doctor that season? The original doctor was, shoot. If you don't remember, that's okay too. I'm sure it'll come to you. Yeah. I mean, my favorite doctor is definitely David Tennant who I think is arguably the best doctor. It seems He's like a lot too. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> that <does> help. <laughs> but it has been, it's, I didn't think I would get into it as much as I did. It starts out super campy and you can tell that they had zero budget when they started making it. And by the end of like the current season, there is just so much budget in it. And you just really, you do get this kind of attachment to all these characters. And especially when they change doctors, it's like, it's just a knife to the heart every single time you get, <laughs> get really attached to them. So I would highly recommend that if you need anything that's going to last for seasons and really take up some time, this is definitely a good series. Highly recommend if you haven't watched it. So that's going to be my pick for this week. I love that. Yeah. I've never watched Doctor Who. I, it's too much. It's like a commitment to get into. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's actually overwhelming to look at. So there's so much out there. I've never gotten into it either because every time I've looked, I feel like it's like it's a, an exam I'm taking or something because there's like... <laughs> 20 seasons and I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> so my pick, I've got, I've actually got two picks. So the first I'm, I'm usually like a good five or six years behind any trend. So I've just started watching <laughs> uh Schitt's Creek. So I'm, you know, it's been out there for a few years and, but it's, it's quite good. So if you haven't watched it before, the, you, you kind of have to watch it for a few seasons before it gets good. I was sort of hesitant to get into it because I'm not normally a comedy show type of person but i think what makes the show interesting is there actually is some good character development that happens but you got to give it a little bit of time to get into it so we're in i think season four right now and it's gets to the point where you, you get in binge mode and you kind of have to watch it all the way through i started watching Shit's creek right when animal crossing came out and my memories of animal crossing and Shit's creek are like <laughs> it was like right at the beginning of covid and they're totally merged together such a great show though and a great ending beautiful yeah it's such a cute show i really like it and then my other pick is i run a thing on wednesdays called react wednesdays so we've been experimenting at work with twitch and doing sort of like interviews and live coding things on twitch and we've sort of consolidated it into a weekly thing on wednesdays so we just bring on people and are, we're trying to experiment a bit more being pandemic-y and no events and such to make things a little more interesting than the typical like virtual conference type thing so if you're interested in all and want to come hang out and talk React every week, we're we're on Twitch and I'll paste in a link if you want to check that out. Nice. What times do you normally do that? 
It is one Eastern on Wednesdays. Cool. And we bring in a guest every week. So, TJ, we should collab. Uh, I run the MongoDB Twitch stream. We stream every Friday, and we start streaming on Wednesdays too at the same time. Yeah, if you if you want to come on React Wednesdays, we'd be happy to have you. So we'll yeah, to totally. Or come on our show too. Oh, do. we could. Do if you have any projects, like <laughs> exactly, <laughs> collab. Uh, we'll talk. We'll talk. Sounds good. All right. Am I up? Yeah. What you picks are. you got? Let's see here. I'm similar to Paige. I've been getting into an old show for the first time. So I'm watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine right now. I'm on like season four right now. It's, I'm having a blast with it. Yeah, I don't know. I finished uh, Next Generation and I'm like Googling online, like what what do I do next? And like everyone's like, you got to check the show out. Anyway, I'm having a blast with it. The other thing too, I just, my 3D printer was broken all summer and I just got it working again. So I've just been printing nonstop for like what days now. What do you print? Yeah. yeah. I've been printing a Halloween costume actually. We're recording this pre-Halloween here, but it's a Star Trek costume too. That's awesome. <laughs> surprise, surprise. So wait, but, uh, how do you print? Like, a, how do you print a Halloween costume? I have I have some questions <laughs> here because I don't I don't see how that happens. How big is this? Yeah, I'm printing up. <laughs> it's pretty big. I, I podcast this so you can't see it at home. Like right now, I'm printing out a phase. It's like a a phaser gun from Star Trek. Um, but it's, uh, okay. the print tray is like a foot by like twelve inches by twelve inches. I'm also printing out like pips and then like the Star Trek like uh, com badge nice. or whatever. And then I'm just gonna have like a sweater or whatever. I can't print out textiles yet. But, uh, are these things you can just like? Can you just like Google the the files you need to print these out, or yeah. are there sites for this sort of thing? There's a ton, yeah. And people just upload them. Like this is my test print. It's just like a little bat wing. You can see the little. I'm showing on Zoom right now. Sorry, listeners. Oh, that's cool. I like that. But yeah, people just upload stuff online. I made a couple things like design, but I'm not a 3D designer. I'm more of a webby guy. Yeah. It's hard for me. I could learn it, but yeah, there's just so many free, like amazing free stuff online. Or you can pay for it too. Lots of like Etsy for a paid fancy model or whatever. <laughs> the community is incredible. I love it. It's so much fun. You'll, it's a fun winter activity. You'll have to give us the link to your 3D printer. So if people are interested in getting Ooh. into it, they can try it out. Yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna just, it's a Prusa i3 Mark III. They're super easy to build. They're amazing. I'll drop a link. I'm a big fan of them. I've had it you for years. It's great. Pulled that name out of your head a little too quickly. This <laughs> is... <laughs> <laughs> I'm obsessed with that dang picture. It's so great. <laughs> well, Joe, I, to wrap us up, if people have want to get in touch with you, have any further questions and such, what's the best way to to reach out? Twitter at Joe Carlson one uh, is the best way to do it. And also, I got to plug this too. I work for MongoDB. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, hit us up on the community.mongodb.com. We just launched our new community forums. I'm also writing a ton of posts right now on our dev hub, which is also new. So developer.mongodb.com. I'll drop links for that in the show notes. And yeah, I'd love to say hi. Twitter's the best way though. Well, cool. Well, this is an awesome chat. So thanks so much for joining us today. Oh my gosh, I had so much fun. You, Paige, TJ, you guys are so much fun. I had a blast here today. Yeah. Cool. Hopefully I'll see you in real life someday. Yeah. <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks everybody for joining us. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.